Thank you, choir. Thank you. The uh, title of that song, the, the point of the song, that God saves is appropriate for where we are this morning. If you have your Bible, it's going to be turning to Mark chapter 5. We're beginning chapter 5 this morning, and uh, we'll only be in chapter 5 this week and next week. Uh, it's mainly made up of, of three stories, and they're kind of big chunk stories. But while you're turning there, I want to remind you where we are. I want to remind us where we are in, in Mark's gospel. Uh, we started uh, several months ago, and we saw that when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes as the Son of God. He comes as the one to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And right up front, the first thing he does is he's, he's baptized, and he goes into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he, he does uh, battle with Satan, and he binds Satan. And right up front, Mark wants us to understand that what we will see throughout the rest of Mark's gospel is Jesus continuing to bind Satan. That right up front, he does battle conflict with him. We don't, we're not given a whole lot of insight into what happens. Matthew tells us a little more. But right up front, Matthew, or, or Jesus binds Satan. And then Mark records over and over again that he is casting out demons, that he has authority over demons. And we're going to see that just this morning, that he has authority over a number of demons. But Mark is, is, is rolling this out, that Jesus has come to deal with Satan, the enemy of God, and thus the enemy of God's people. We've seen Jesus teaching He's been teaching in, in numerous settings that's, that, that often accompanies his, his exorcisms where he's casting out demons and healing. We've, seen, uh, we've sat at Jesus' feet and heard him teach us about faith and about the nature of the kingdom of God and all through chapter 4. We were in the boat with Jesus last week when we thought the storm was just going to kill us. And yet we saw just last week that Jesus' power over the storm, over the natural realm of life, Jesus' power over that, as stunning as it is, did not comfort the disciples. If you remember, it says, when he calmed the storm, they grew afraid of him. Their, 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 their terror increased. And they asked, well, who is this man? We've heard him teach. We've seen him do some incredible things, but who is this? Well, because Mark's a good storyteller, and he left us hanging with that question last week, who is this man? He's now going to tell us another story, another encounter from Jesus' life that answers that question. Who is this man? So if you've got your Bibles open and you're able to stand, I'll invite you to stand. <clears throat> Mark chapter 5, beginning verse 1. So they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus saw from afar, or when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. 
for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. God, we confess together that this is your word. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open it to our hearts and our minds and cause us to see wondrous things. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're confronted again with authority that demands a decision. Last week the disciples were confronted with Jesus' authority, his utter authority over things that they didn't think people had authority over. And just as a blanket truth, people don't have authority over the wind. They don't have authority over the waves. But because Jesus is God and Jesus created those things, he has authority over those things. And so the disciples were confronted with an authority that demanded a decision. Well, here again this morning, we're going to see the characters in this encounter, the, the people in this story are going to be confronted with an authority, and you and I, by God's grace, through his word, are also going to be confronted with this same authority. We see on your notes, if you have them there, the main idea this morning is that Jesus is the servant king who liberates those enslaved in a fallen world, by wielding absolute authority, and as we will see, even over demons. That Jesus, we see him as the servant king, and part of his, his ruling as the king is he is liberating those who are enslaved in this world. Now, the enslavement of this world is not confined to those who are possessed by demons, and, and I'll, I'll make this statement later, but demon possession, I think, is rare. But Jesus wields authority over all things, and he exercises that authority for his people by bringing liberation, bringing freedom. Well, just as a place of context, as I said, the disciples have just been confronted with the question, who is this, this this incredible confrontation in their hearts where they thought they knew him. They thought they were comfortable with him. They thought, oh yeah, I've got a good idea who this guy is, and then out of nowhere, seemingly, All of that is undone. And they're forced to ask the question, did I know him? Do I know Jesus? You see, the one with authority over the natural realm, Mark is going to show us, has authority over the supernatural realm. We just saw him exercise it over the natural realm, and now he's going to exercise it over the supernatural realm. 
Well, as I said, chapter four is all one day. They, Jesus has been teaching, they get in the boat, they cross over, they have the encounter on the sea and they arrive at the other side of the sea. And the other side of the Sea of Galilee geographically would have, would have been Gentile territory or pagan territory. The Jews occupied mainly the west side or the left side of the Sea of Galilee. And so when they crossed over, they would have crossed over into Gentile territory. And in the Gentile territory, demon possession was not all that uncommon at this point in history. Demon possession was, was actually quite uh, quite common, especially in pagan places. Well, Jesus gets off the boat, and Mark likes to use the word immediately. If you read back through Mark's gospel, that's almost one of his favorite words. Immediately this happened. Well, Jesus did this, and then immediately this happened. And then Jesus got off the boat, and immediately it says, there met a, met a man who came from the tombs. Now, uh, tombs were usually placed away from a city center. They're kind of out in the countryside, away from where life occurred. And so the fact that this man is living among the tombs tells us something, that he's not part of society, that he's, he's an outcast. He's been pushed out from where normal life happens. Look at how Mark describes the encounter. It says, he lived among the tombs in verse three. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and with chains and he he wrenched them apart says night and day among the tombs he was always crying out and screaming and cutting himself with stones it's just this picture of this poor man who is living a subhuman life something is going on in him something has a hold of him and it's destroying him not just emotionally because you would say, I think, I think we would all say, no one would intentionally live day and night among a tomb, among the tombs. It's not a place where life occurs. It's actually the antithesis of that or the, or the opposite of that. It's the place where death is. But in addition to living his life among death, it says that physically he's being tormented. He's, he's screaming out, which is usually evidence of something going on in one's mind. He's cutting himself with stones. He is absolutely tormented. And I think if we read Mark carefully with the way Mark puts these stories together and is helping us to see what what he wants us to pick up on is the same way that the disciples were storm-tossed just a few moments ago. This man is being storm-tossed on his inside. As terrified as the disciples were in the boat, as, it's, as seemingly as the danger was about to overtake them, this man is, on the very, is in the very same place. He's not in a boat on the water, but he's being torn apart from the inside. His death is near. And if you remember last week, I said over these next few stories, the threat of death is kind of going to hang over us. The disciples almost died unless, except Jesus saved them. And this man is leading a life among the dead, cutting himself, tormented in his mind, screaming out, and he is almost dead. He is living yet as a dead man. Well, Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus steps off the boat, the man sees him and runs to him. 
We don't know why. We don't know why in particular this man runs to Jesus. I don't, I, I don't particularly think it's because the man wanted to. I think he was compelled to by the demons that were inside of him because they recognize a superior power had, lent, had come ashore. They recognized someone stronger is here. The demons had had free reign over this region. They had had free reign inside of this man. It wasn't a new thing because Mark tells us people had tried to bind him time and time and time again. You see, the, the city, wherever this was, just on the other side of the, of the sea, they didn't want him around. And so they had tried to bind him with shackles and chains. They had taken him out and thrown him uh, into the place of the tombs, hoping he would stay out there. But it said not even chains and shackles could keep this man bound. That he had broken them. Not because he possessed all that physical strength on his own, but because of the strength of the possession of the demons inside of him. And so he runs to Jesus And he cast himself down. It says he ran and he fell down and he cries out with a loud voice. What have you to do with me, Jesus? Now he adds a name here that we haven't seen yet in Mark's gospel. The the demons address him here. Jesus, son of the most high God. So the demons are attributing to him that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. No one else is seeing this yet, but the demons, they know who he is. And so they are confessing it out loud. And if you remember from early on, I said in one of the earlier sermons that when a demon would say someone's name, it was an attempt to get control. If I can say your name, I can control you. And so here's here's this demon saying to Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus? And oh, by the way, I know who you are and I've got you now. But as you and I know, as readers of the story, as, as participants in this story, Jesus will not be confined by this demonic power. Well, before we move further, I think I need to make this point. We all need to see ourselves in this demoniac. That's the word for one possessed by a demon, a demoniac. While we all may not be possessed by a demon, and I pray that 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 never happens. The Bible makes no... no, excuses for this we shouldn't be embarrassed about this this is not something that modern day science explains away although they attempt to the bible is very honest about this but we all need to see ourselves in this man's enslavement our sin functions in much the same way as the demons treat this man you see if we're honest there have been times in our life and perhaps even now When Jesus shows up on our shores and we run to him and we try to appease him so that he'll go away. We recognize if Jesus comes much closer, if I actually begin to engage with Jesus, something's going to have to change. He's got more authority than me. He's got more power than me. If he moves closer, I'm going to have to change. And I'll say this a little bit later, but I think if we're honest, sometimes we like our sin. Sometimes we really enjoy the things that we try to keep hidden from Jesus. And make no mistake about it, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's going on in this man's life. He knows exactly what's going on in our lives. He knows the sin that we're harboring deep in the recesses of our souls. And we know that when Jesus comes near when the light comes near, 
The Bible says we prefer the darkness. And so here's a very real example that happened in Jesus' life where when Jesus lands on the shore, when the light of the Son of God lands on that shore, the demons know if he comes closer, we're done for. And so they want him to go away. They try to one-up him. They try to make sure he stays far enough away. They try to make sure that he doesn't deal with them. You see, sometimes we don't realize just how powerful of a hold our sin can have on us. We don't recognize how controlling our sin can be in our lives. Well, more on that later. Let's go back to the story. It says, they cry out, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, what have you to do with us? And then it says, they begin to, to beg him, to adjure him. Don't cast us out. Don't make us leave. And so what you need to understand is while they're screaming this at Jesus, Jesus is speaking to the demons, come out, you unclean spirits. So there's this, there's this exchange going on. There's this, there's this grappling or this fight going on where Jesus is commanding these demons and the demons are, are hanging on with all that they can because they don't want to leave their host. They're quite comfortable and Jesus asked, what is your name? Now here is where Jesus is exerting his authority over the demons. He doesn't need to know their names. He knows their names. He's God. But it's an exercise of authority. He's reminding them, you have no place here. You have no authority here. You have no power over me. And then trying to be coy or trying to avoid Jesus' attempts at power, Jesus' exercises of power, he doesn't attempt anything, he just does. But trying to avoid Jesus' exercise of power, they don't give him his name. They say, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, if you pay attention, you'll see the grammatical change in verse 9. Starts off with that singular personal pronoun, my and then he uses the plural, we. My name is Legion. It's not a name as much as it is a description. Now, there's not a direct correlation to the military term Legion, but a Roman legion of soldiers would have been 6,000 plus men. And so, were there 6,000 demons in this man? There might have been. What we do know is that it were, there were enough to take a herd of pigs 2,000 strong and, and, and run them to their death. But the point here being Jesus is not just dealing with one demon. Up until this point, we've seen him dealing with one demon at a time. Now there stands before him in this poor soul an army. An army of Satan's demons. And they are threatening this man. They are threatening the life of this man. They are trying to rebuff Jesus' authority. They're trying to gain control over him. They're, they're, they're trying to reject what Jesus is trying to do. You see, what we need to understand about demons biblically is that they don't do anything but seek to destroy all that God has made. There's nothing wholesome about what they do. They want to defame and deface and destroy all of God's good creation. And Jesus has come to save this man. Jesus has come to rescue this man. And we need to understand that, brothers and sisters, about our sin. 
Our sin can sometimes make itself seem like it's good. It can sometimes make itself seem like it's the best way or it's attractive or that it gives us life. And really in the end, all it's doing is keeping us as those living among the dead. There's nothing good about our sin. There's nothing honoring to God when we hold on to our sin and when we fight against the authority of Jesus to try and maintain our sin. And so finally, Jesus just speaks. He doesn't, he doesn't have to, 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 to recite some incantation. He doesn't have to ask somebody's permission. He just speaks to them. Come out. Just as he stood and spoke to the wind and the waves and there was an immediate cease... So when he speaks to the demons, they have to obey. Now they make a request of Jesus, send us into those pigs. There are 2,000, a herd of 2,000 pigs. And if you know anything about pigs, that's a lot of pigs. Even if you just know 2,000, that's a lot of pigs. So it had been a huge herd. And they're up, on a, they're up on a hill, up on a cliff. And for some reason, these, these demons ask to go into those pigs. And Jesus grants their request. And then ultimately, the pigs die. Now, as of late, people are embarrassed about this text because they think, well, this is animal cruelty. People think, well, well, well why would Jesus let that happen? Well, for one thing, what we need to understand is in the first century Jewish culture, Pigs were looked at about the same way we look at rats. If this said, hey, there was a a group of 2,000 rats and they all died, we'd say, well, great. So it wasn't wasn't the same culture-to-culture kind of thing. They looked at pigs as gross. And pigs are kind of gross. But it wasn't the same way we look at them. But here's what we need to understand. Mark is not concerned about the pigs. Mark is concerned about the salvation of this poor man. You see, the Bible holds this distinction very clear that given animals and mankind, do you know who's more precious to God? Mankind. There's only one creature in all creation that bears God's image, and it's man. And so this poor man, now when I say mankind, I mean men and women. This poor man in the story is being ruined by these demons. And Jesus has come that he might have life. Well, after the incident with the pigs, it says the herdsmen go and tell the town people and they come out and they're, they're very curious about what has happened. They're very concerned. They see what's happened to the pigs because that didn't just go away. They see the man. And the story doesn't tell us how long this town had been dealing with this man, only that they had been dealing with him for a time. And so they come out and they see this man in his right mind, clothed with Jesus. And so now, just as the disciples in the boat were confronted, there is someone here whose authority we couldn't even fathom. These townspeople had tried over and over again to confine This man, and yet here's Jesus who has shown up and with the word can find him. And so they're being confronted once again with that same reality. There's something about Jesus that is uncontrollable. Not that Jesus is uncontrolled, but that his authority is something far and away greater than I think we often think it is. 
They recognized, hey, we couldn't bind this man with change, and yet Jesus shows up and with the word deals with him. And so just as the disciples were terrified of Jesus in the boat, so the townspeople are now terrified of Jesus' power. And they ask him to leave. They too recognize, uh, this guy has something that is terrifying. Perhaps they asked him to leave because of the pigs, but more likely they asked him to leave because they have recognized his power. And so as Jesus is getting in the boat, Mark says, the the man, the healed man comes to him and says, let me be with you. You We can all imagine that. That having experienced this, this tormenting possession, having been rescued by this man, having been alienated and estranged from all that we knew before, we would want to cling to him. Let me go with you, Jesus. And yet Jesus says, no, I want you to go back to your family. They won't hear from me right now. They're too scared right now, but they'll hear you. They know you. They've seen you. They saw you before. They see you now. Go back and tell them all that God has done for you. And because Mark's a good storyteller, because Mark is good with his words, he highlights the fact that Jesus is God. Because Jesus tells him, hey, go back and tell them all that God has done for you. And it says the man went and told them all that Jesus had done for him. And so Mark is saying, don't miss that the God who liberated this man, this this great exercise of power, Jesus is God himself. Well, in your notes, I've got an extended reflection and application. I I want us to kind of look at how this story is told in a different part of the Bible. It's the passage I read just a few moments ago out of Ephesians chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to keep the story of Jesus liberating this demoniac from his enslavement. And all that goes into this story, I want you to keep that in your mind as we read through this text. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So think about the story in Mark where Jesus shows up on the scene and the man possessed by demons comes to him. He's a man who is physically alive and yet dead, living among the dead. He is enslaved to all that is within him. And Jesus, or Paul says in Ephesians 2, that apart from Christ, this is who we all are. We are dead in our trespasses and our sins. We are following the power of Satan. He says in verse 3 of Ephesians 2 that we are enslaved to the destructive nature of our natural selves. That we are children of wrath. That we are outcasts. That we are living among the tombs of life. 
You see, when we think about our sin, our sin doesn't give us anything good. Our sin always leads us to self-destruction. Our sin always leads us to reject the authority or attempt to reject the authority of Jesus Christ. Our sin leads us to be those who are living and yet are dead. Well, look at verse 4 of Ephesians 2. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Do you know what that man didn't do when, he, when Jesus showed up on the shore? He didn't ask him for salvation. He didn't say, finally, Jesus, you're here. Save me from my sins. That man was enslaved in a way that he could not even ask. Did not want to ask. And yet Jesus, being a good and faithful and saving God, even while he was dead in his sin, brought him to life. Jesus showed up on that man's shore and with a word of authority pronounced salvation. So lest we miss that we think we can somehow choose salvation on our own, that we can somehow just, we want to be saved because we're pretty good people and we just need Jesus to finish it. Understand what Paul's saying, that we are like the demoniac. Our sin has such an incredibly tight hold on us that without the saving work of Jesus Christ, we have no hope. We'll be condemned to live among the tombs. We'll be condemned to the torment of our sin. Well, he goes on. He says that Christ has saved us. By grace you have been saved, raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show how the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It says in verse eight, by grace you have been saved and This is through faith. It's not of your own doing, but it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And then in verse 10, it says that God saves his people and commissions them to walk in good works, which he has already set aside. And so just like the demoniac who who has been saved by grace, who has been restored He wants to be with Jesus, which is the right posture of a disciple. If you remember back to chapter 3, Jesus calls his disciples to be with him. And so this guy wants to be with Jesus. But Jesus also has good works for him to walk in. And so Jesus commissions him, go back and tell. Go tell your family. Go tell your friends. Go tell all who knew you before and all who didn't know you before how good and gracious God has been to you. Well, that's not all. The story goes on in Ephesians 2 verse 11. It says, remember, at one time you you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth and the promises. Here's the point. That that demoniac was a Gentile cut off from the salvation promises that God had given to Israel. He was called unworthy by the Jews. And yet Jesus, being a gracious and saving God, has come to him, has rescued him from his sin, has saved him and restored him, and has now commissioned him to go all with the full promises of God. 
In verse 17, it tells us that Christ came and preached to those who were far off. This man was excommunicated from his community. He was far away, and yet Jesus showed up. And so just when Jesus pushed that boat off on the other side of the sea and knew that the storm lay ahead, and he knew, I'm going to use this storm and the life of my disciples, he knew on the other side of that storm there was a demoniac who needed salvation. One of my favorite quotes is, it's not, it's, not, it's not a Bible quote, mind you. I think it's biblically true. But it says, Jesus is doing 10,000 things a day in your life, and you might be aware of three. You see, the disciples had no idea when they were climbing in that boat that Jesus was about to rock their world twice. And yet Jesus knew every bit along the way. He was going to demonstrate for them Time after time after time, his authority to save, his authority to call, his authority to commission. And so here's some closing remarks I want to make this morning. Some of you, no doubt, are finding yourselves in the demoniac's enslavement. Some of you are just enslaved to your sin. Some of you are leading a life like him, where you just, you put on a show when you need to, and yet you are totally enslaved to your sin. Some of you just found yourselves last week in the boat. You were realizing that you were questioning Jesus' goodness. Does Jesus care if we are suffering? Many of you told me last week how much that text meant to you, and I praise God for that. Some of you this morning, there are some of us this morning that are realizing we are enslaved to our sin. That we're beaten down, that we are divided against ourselves, that there's a civil war raging within, that we know what's right and yet we always choose what's wrong, that we are living in the gloomy tombs of this life. There are some of you that just feel all alone because you know what everybody thinks that you are, the person that people think you are just isn't true. that you're actually just putting on a facade, that you're putting on an outward appearance. And if you are recognizing yourself in this tortured man, if you are recognizing that that's you, that you're just enslaved to your sin, that you're just going about hiding your sin, but enjoying it and trying to keep the world out, if that's you, then you need to recognize that that is not a final judgment. Because just as for the demoniac, salvation is offered. This man had no hope. And yet Jesus shows up with salvation. And if you this morning are enslaved to your sin, if you're finding yourself in this man, you need to hear that Jesus saves. You see, the great calm that came over the sea is now matched by the great calm that's in this demoniac's heart. Because where he was tossed to and fro and literally coming undone because of the power of these demons, he's now calm and in his right mind and he can think clearly. And so Jesus has brought peace. You see, we live in a fallen world. We have a fallen sin nature on our own. 
Naturally, we are those who live, yet are spiritually dead. We are physically alive, but apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. We love things we ought not love. We seek salvation in things that offer no salvation. We scream. We, we bring harm to ourselves. We bring destruction on our God-given humanity because we love our sin. We live among and seek a life where there is only death. If we are not following the spirit of God, if we are not loving the things of God, then we are living among a place where there is only death. Apart from Christ, we are cut off from the land of the living. We are cut off from the promises of life. And we stand hopeless. If that's where you are, then like the crowds of townspeople and the disciples, the confrontation of Jesus' authority is doing one of two things. It's either making you think, Jesus might mess up what I've got going and I need him to go away, or Jesus has more power than I thought. You see, sometimes we get so blinded in our thinking that we think Jesus could never actually heal what's going on in me. We don't actually confess the dark sin in our life because we are embarrassed about what other people might think. We think, well, if Jesus really knew, if I really got this out, can Jesus really fix it? But make no mistake. Mark says that Jesus came to do battle against God's enemies for God's people. And so in the same way that Jesus plunders Satan, that is that he binds him up and begins to take back what is his, Jesus has the full authority and power to save us from whatever the sin is in our lives. Some of us come to Jesus like some people go to counselors. We say we want to change and then we fight tooth and nail to not change. We say we want salvation and then we try as hard as we can to not have it. But make no mistake, just as with the legion of demons, Jesus is not deterred by our stalling tactics. Jesus is not undone by the power of our sin. And so the question before us this morning is will we respond as the healed man or as the frightened crowd? Are we going to respond as the healed man who sees the authority of Jesus and who, has, who we have eyes to see and ears to hear that we see clearly who he is and we say, Jesus, I want to be with you? Or are we going to be like the townspeople who say, that's too much? What you have is too much. I'm comfortable with my life. I don't want you coming in and changing things. If you just stay over on the other side of the lake, I'll be fine. But that's too much. Go away. That's the choice. There's there's no middle option. Let's pray. God, I I praise you that you are 
our Savior, that you have total and complete authority to deal with our sin. God, I praise you for the powerful work of salvation you worked in this man's life in Mark chapter five, that you showed up and saved him decisively, powerfully, and you commissioned him to go. But I pray that we see our own selves in that, that you show up in our lives through the power of your word, you call us to salvation, and then you commission us to go. God, I pray this morning for those who are finding themselves enslaved to their sin, enslaved to things that are absolutely draining life out of them. I pray, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would deal with them and help them to see that there is no life there and that through you, Jesus, they can have salvation. God, I pray for those who are wrestling like the townspeople with being confronted of, if you show up, you will change things. So God, give us the faith and the desire to want the change that you bring. We need it, desperately. God, as we respond now, I pray that we would respond in faith. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond through song. The altar's open.